Circus Camp. Circus Camp. What do you want to know? Just what the fuck? <laughs> well, when I was five or six, we were spending like a week in the summer um, on Martha's Vineyard with some friends who had a house there or like rented a house. I don't know, something. Um, and the Circus Smirkus show came to the island and so we went to see it and it was awesome and like it's it, it the show was and I don't know if it still is if it still exists but it it was like circus professionals but it was also kids circus trained children that were part of the troupe and so I don't know it was super cool and then a, a few years after that I think my parents learned that they ran a summer camp every year up in New Hampshire. Um, and I don't know, I had always gone to camp in the summers cause my parents worked, you know, during the day mm. and, uh, but usually just day camp, Stony Brook acres, woot woot in Wilbraham, Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, so they're like, Oh, if you want to go to sleepaway camp, you could go to circus camp. And I was like, sure. That sounds great. <laughs> and so the first year I just went for a week and they taught you to juggle. Uh, you know, when they walk on those big, big balls, like it's called, um, it's called a, it's called globe walking. Uh, usually you see like clowns do it. I learned how to do that. And oh. the, the, the perch and the trapeze and honestly, and it was a lot of you. I was, uh, the first time I went, I was nine, and then I went again the next year for two weeks, and I was ten. So, can you still do any of that stuff? Oh, yeah. I can still juggle. Mostly the juggling. That was my big takeaway. <laughs> Which has actually served juggle. me very well, so. But you I can only juggle in everyday life. Honestly, yeah. Like, I've used it more times than I probably ever should have like <laughs> so there's that maybe you can teach me sometimes because I've never been able to do it it's it's pretty easy once you get the hang of it I say that and then everyone always yells at me but like if if I could learn as a idiot 10 year old then <laughs> you know yeah but yes oh. that was the last and only sleepaway camp I went to. <laughs> Circus Marcus and somewhere somewhere in New Hampshire. <laughs> well, sounds like you had a very wholesome, fulfilling childhood. Oh yes. Uh, I I'm I'm sure that there are pictures. I know there are pictures somewhere, but I don't have them. But my mother is still in Vermont, so I could ask her to get some a fair warning they're full of cargo shorts and just horrible 19 or 2000 2001 outfits so i'm gonna say are you really a 90s kid if you didn't have horrendous clothes as a child yeah they're real bad real bad real bad but i know i have a whole little photo album of of photos from at least the first year i don't know about the second year but Okay. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> are you ready? Yeah.
I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week, we're bringing you the story of Colin Pitchfork, who holds the honour, if that is the right phrase, of being the first person ever to be convicted of a crime using DNA profiling. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool stuff here today. Um, So, you know, these days we take sort of DNA and forensic evidence in general for granted. Uh, There have even been cases of juries finding people not guilty because of a lack of DNA, uh, despite having seen overwhelming evidence like CCTV footage to prove someone's guilt. Uh, But... I just find that incredible. I love it. It's like, it was the CSI effect, or isn't that what they call it now? Yeah. Like, oh, well, there's no DNA. It must not be him. Yeah. It's wild. It really is. And I'm trying to think, because I've seen it in a couple of documentaries where it's been talked about, and I'm trying to think of them specifically, and I can't. Um, But yeah, people are like, oh, well, there was no DNA evidence. Yes, but you saw... CCTV footage that was clearly this person doing this crime. <laughs> that's what else do you need? That's the thing. It's like, okay, fine. There's no DNA, but if you're literally able to watch the crime happen, yeah, then I'm pretty sure you can find him guilty. Um, or her. Equal opportunity offenses here. Uh, so that's where we are now. Great. Thank you, television. <laughs> Uh, but just 30 years ago, DNA was still brand new. Um, uh, and you can kind of compare it to like forensic genealogy now, which is really just starting to kick off and make a big impact in a lot of these like cold cases and stuff. Yeah. And adding to the long list of things that we are not, we most definitely are not geneticists or microbiologists. But we have done our best to learn a little bit about DNA and how it works. I said we've done our best. I didn't say we've done a good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. DNA, or dioxyribonucleic acid, was first discovered by Swiss chemist Frederick Meischer in 1869. Meischer discovered what he called nuclein inside the nucleus of a white blood cell. This would later become known as nucleic acid and eventually dioxyribonucleic acid. Yes, I'm showing off because I learned how to say it. (laughs) Meischer's plan was to isolate and study the protein components of white blood cells. When he discovered the nuclein, he discovered they behaved unlike any of the other proteins in white blood cells. He discovered significant differences between nucleins and other proteins, and the main one being that nucleins weren't broken down and digested. Oh. They weren't broken down and digested as uh, other types of proteins were in white blood cells. Hmm. Um, So Friedrich Meischer's name fell into obscurity by the turn of the century, but other chemists and biologists uh, continued his research into nucleons. Uh, now, <laughs> we're not going to pretend that we understand all the different discoveries made uh, regarding DNA, but over the years, 
Scientists found that DNA is different across different species. In 1927, Russian biologist and geneticist Nikolai Kolstov proposed that inherited traits were transferred via a giant hereditary molecule that was made up of, quote, two mirror strands that would replicate in a semi-conservative fashion using each strand as a template, end quote. Um, and in 1953, the double helix was discovered by James Watson and Francis Crick, building on the work done by researchers who had gone before them. But, so that's 1953, and still be another 35 years before DNA would be used in forensic science. So prior to DNA, investigators had to rely on things such as finger and palm prints, which obviously only work if the perpetrator touched surfaces and didn't clean up or, you know, didn't wear gloves. Yeah. <laughs> blood typing was common, but it wasn't always the case that there would be perp blood. And it would only narrow down to a blood type, which is still like millions of people. Hair matching was quite common until it was debunked. And that's where scientists would say, you know, a hair found at a crime scene was microscopic, microscopically similar to that of the accused or you know they found a hair that was microscopically similar to the victim on the accused something like that that one's and been like regard like that's been debunked quite recently hasn't it yeah or um, like it only extra debunked recently <laughs> yeah it was a couple of years ago there was a lot about it yeah because it's been that and like um, blood spatter evidence uh, or like, yeah. you know, directionality of blood spatter is all kind of yeah. regarded as junk science now. Yeah. Um, but like I said, different things have been debunked and all these methods had a wide margin for error or interpretation. Like even fingerprinting relied on an accurate visual comparison in the like pre-computer, pre-technological age. Yeah. But the individualistic nature of DNA made those error margins much, much smaller. Yes, because 99.9% of human DNA is identical, but that 0.1% is enough for an individual profile for every single person in the world. Except for identical twins who usually have identical DNA profiles, although not fraternal twins. They have different DNA. But because of identical twins, they are from the same egg, so they just go bloop. Yep, that's the exact sound effect that makes as well. It just goes <laughs> bloop, and you've got two twins. See, so if you're pregnant, listen out for the bloop, because you might be having twins. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I know science. <laughs> That's why I have three arts degrees. Yeah. Um, so in 1984, British geneticist and lecturer at the University of Leicester, Alec Jeffries, developed a method to profile DNA while studying X-ray images of a DNA experiment. And this was first tested publicly in an immigration case the following year. Jeffries developed profiles for a young British boy whose family was originally from Ghana and profiles from the boy's parents and compared them to prove that the boy was, in fact, their son. 
1986, Alex Jeffries's DNA profiling technique was used for the first time in a criminal case that took place just five and a half miles from the university uh, where he had developed the technique. On July 31st, 1986, 15-year-old Dawn Ashworth from Enderby, a small town near Leicester in central England, had gone to a friend's house. Her parents had expected her home by about 9.30 that evening, that night, and when she failed to return home, they reported her missing to the police. Two days later, Dawn's body was found in a wooded area called Ten Pound Lane. She'd been savagely beaten, brutally raped, and then strangled to death. The case was eerily similar to the unsolved case of Linda Mann, a 15-year-old schoolgirl who had been beaten, raped and strangled to death in the same savage and brutal manner in November 1983 in the village of Narborough, just a mile away from Enderby. Linda had been babysitting and had taken a shortcut on her walk home. When she didn't return home, her parents and neighbours went out looking for her. But the next morning, she was found along a footpath called the Black Pad, by a local hospital worker. Linda was described as quiet but popular and enjoyed spending time with her friends. We don't really know much else about Linda or anything about Dawn because everything in this case is overshadowed by it being the first case to be tried using DNA profiling. Mm. And that in itself is an amazing achievement and it's helped so many murder victims, sexual assault victims get justice. But as a result of that, the victims in this case have almost been forgotten. Yeah, which is a real shame. Yeah. The two murders took place about a mile apart, and in between the two sites was a psychiatric hospital. So after Linda's murder, obviously everyone jumped to the conclusion that it was it had to be an escaped patient who had raped and murdered her. But uh, this was quickly disproved by local authorities and police stressed to the public that the killer would more than likely be an ordinary seeming man who had an ordinary life. Uh, semen samples were recovered from Linda's body and forensic scientists were able to develop a blood type and enzyme profile from the sample, but DNA profiling was still a couple of years away. Uh, the enzyme profile and blood sample matched 10% of the population of Britain, which is still a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what the population was in the 80s, but that's still too many a people. Lot. <laughs> yeah, too many doors to go knocking on. In 1983, it was 56 million. So, so 10% is that still 5 million people. Yeah. That would take too long. Um, so didn't help him super a lot there because this was such a huge number. Didn't have a, a, a perfect match. Uh, Linda's case went cold. That is until 1986 when Dawn was murdered and the two cases were linked. Semen samples recovered from Dawn's body and clothing matched the blood type and enzyme profile of Linda's killer and proved the two girls were killed by the same man. A week, about a week after Dawn's murder, a local woman reported to the police that she had seen a young man by the name of Richard Buckland in the area of Ten Pound Lane on the day Dawn disappeared. Richard Buckland was 17 years old at the time of Dawn's murder. So he would have been... 
uh, 14 at the time of Linda's murder, three years earlier, and worked as a kitchen porter at the nearby psychiatric hospital. Richard had learning difficulties and was well known in the local area for following girls and hiding, jumping out to scare them. So based on this and the eyewitness testimony, he was arrested and questioned. And after being questioned by police alone for 15 hours, Richard Buckland confessed to Dawn's murder, but denied murdering Linda. Yeah, that whole alone for 15 hours yeah, plus learning difficulties thing. Yeah, I mean... He should have at least had, like, an appropriate adult with him. Yeah. To make sure he was safe and knew what he was... Knew where he was and what he was doing, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, police claimed that uh, during questioning, Richard knew details which hadn't been released to the public... Uh, and so the position of Don's body and her clothes hadn't been released to the public, but Richard seemed to know this. And so that alone was good enough for them. Uh, but because he continued to deny involvement in Linda's murder, police decided that they would try out this brand new technology called DNA profiling that was discovered just, just up the road at University of Leicester. So blood samples were taken from Richard Buckland and Alec Jeffries and his team developed a DNA profile and used the semen samples to develop a DNA profile for the killer and the two were compared. Guess what? They didn't match. There is a great bit in the Forensic Files episode on, on this case where Alec Jeffries is, you know, talking about the case and he says that, you know, they turn around to the police and like, the profiles don't match and the police pretty much just didn't believe him but like no it has to be him oh no sorry not a match sorry not a match um so he referred them to home office forensic investigators who developed the profiles again and once again they didn't match and this time they believed it (laughs) thankfully so uh, alec jeffries is actually very gracious about all this and uh, has said well, why, why would they believe it? Why shouldn't they question this new technology? And I think that's a nice sentiment too. It's like, yeah, we do need to question these things, like because hair matching science, you know, used to be gospel, and now it's like that's bullshit. So, and the same with with blood uh, blood splatter. Yeah. That's been you say that's been debunked at one time. That was heavily relied on. Yeah. Um, handwriting analysis like all this stuff so like shoe prints even tire prints yeah so good good for questioning but not don't question stuff just to because it doesn't fit your theory yeah just to go for confirmation bias (laughs) yeah 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 don't twist facts to suit theories yes that um So after uh, being in prison for four months on remand, Richard Buckland became the first person ever to be cleared using DNA profiling and was released in late 1986, which probably 
that feels like a pretty good first to be. Yeah. That's, yeah, first person to be cleared. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Alec Jeffries, the police involved with the case, and many an armchair detective all agreed that had DNA profiling not been used, uh, Richard Buckland would have been found guilty of Linda and Dawn's murders. In interviews, Buckland said that the police pressure after 15 hours was what led him to confess. Uh, it's believed that he may have discovered Dawn's body soon after her murder, but not reported it, and that's why he knew information that hadn't been released to the public. Or that the police sort of planted that information during his questioning. Uh, and while it is great that a young man with learning disabilities wasn't sentenced for a crime he didn't commit. Always good. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, there shouldn't be a sentence that we ever have to say. But I know, yeah. Sadly, it is when police investigations really don't work. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's good. Yay for that. But there was still the issue that police didn't know who the hell the murderer was. But now that the police understood the power of DNA profiling, they decided to carry out a DNA dragnet. So in early 1987, they sent letters out to every male between the ages of 13 and 35 in the local area, asking them to volunteer a blood sample. And it's important to note that it, was, it wasn't compulsory. For it to be compulsory, they'd have to like get a court order um, and a warrant and everything like that, which, firstly, ain't nobody got time for that. No. Nor do they have like the evidence or the ground needed to get court orders for blood samples for 5,500 men. 5,500 men in the local area came in and gave blood samples. Amazing. Yeah. Now... With DNA profiling being a new technology, it was entirely plausible that the murderer would give their blood voluntarily without realising how it all worked. But police were also keeping an eye on those who didn't volunteer mm -hmm. a sample. In case any of them could have been the killer. But after more than five and a half thousand blood samples were compared, there were no matches. And so again, it's entirely possible that the killer didn't live in the local area. But also unlikely. Um... And so, again, the case went cold. Until August 1987, when a woman in a Leicester pub called the Clarendon overheard a conversation about the DNA dragnet. And a man by the name of Ian Kelly uh, told his friends that he had impersonated his friend Colin Pitchfork to give a blood sample. Uh, this woman was rightly so very suspicious of this. Uh, after all, what kind of innocent man would ask his, uh, his friends to go impersonate them for a, a DNA dragnet? Uh, so she called the police, giving them the names Ian Kelly and Colin Pitchfork. So police were like, oh, yay, more information. And they quickly got back onto the case um, and after interviewing Ian Kelly, they found that he worked with Colin Pitchfork uh, at a local bakery, but lived outside of the Dragnet area, so he hadn't been called on to volunteer a sample. So uh, Pitchfork told Ian that he had already given a sample, impersonating a friend who was wanted by police, and so he couldn't give another one uh, because they'd find out that he had, you know, 
he had helped out his buddy. So he convinced Ian to go give a sample for him. <laughs> it's all very, there's layers in this scam. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, they say if you, if you tell a lie, you end up having to tell like 10 lies to cover up for it. It's kind of like that, but with blood samples. Yeah, if you if you avoid giving a blood sample, you have to get 10 other people to give one for you. Well, what if they extended the dragnet and this guy, you know, Ian Kelly, was called upon? Yeah. He'd have to get someone to give to it to him, it. and then and it would go on and on like and that. And on and on and on. So just give your own blood samples, people. Um, so or don't commit murders to start with. That's the one. We always forget the simplest... I always forget the simplest answer. Just don't don't do that yeah. to begin with. Um, so all right, so he convinced Ian to go give the sample for him, but uh, you needed a photo ID to give a blood sample. So to deal with the photo ID issue, the pair went to get a passport photo taken, and Pitchfork replaced the photo in his passport with one of Ian, and then Ian went off and gave the sample but as it turned out pitchfork hadn't been helping a friend out he was just avoiding the police because he already had a history of indecent exposure and he'd been following the news very closely and he understood dna profiling and how it would conclusively prove who the murderer was i am shocked that Mm. he wasn't just being a good guy yeah so in September 1987, the police arrested 27-year-old Colin Pitchfork. He was a baker. He was married with two children. And as with all murderers and rapists, nobody saw it coming because he was such a lovely, normal family man. Of course. During police questioning, Pitchfork confessed to exposing himself to more than 1,000 women and girls, beginning in his teens. He eventually confessed to two rapes, as well as the rape and murder of Linda and Dawn. He said that he progressed from just, quote-unquote, just raping women to killing them as well so that there would be no victims to accuse him. Lovely. Um, the mental gymnastics of that one is yeah, it's a astounding. bit twisted logic there. Mm. Um. So although Pitchfork had confessed, police needed to be sure that they had the right guy this time. Uh, you know, Richard Buckland had confessed too, but he, he didn't do it. So blood samples were taken from Colin Pitchfork and his DNA profile matched that of Linda and Dawn's murderer. The case went to trial and in 1988, Colin Pitchfork was found guilty of the rapes and murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth and was sentenced to life in prison. The Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales at the time, Lord Geoffrey Dawson Lane, said, quote, from the point of view of the safety of the public, I doubt he should ever be released. Um, a minimum term of 30 years was set, but in 2009, Pitchfork appealed it, and uh, it was reduced to 28 years. For the first 20 years of his sentence, he seemed to have kept a you know, pretty low profile. But then in 2009, Pitchfork was back in the news again. Because it turns out that dear old Colin likes art mm. and had been making sculptures whilst in prison. 
And in 2009, one of these sculptures that he'd made whilst in Franklin Prison in northeast England was publicly exhibited at the Royal Festival Hall in London's South Bank. It was exhibited as part of a scheme by the Costler Trust, who work with offenders both in prison and who've been released, to help them express themselves through art. However, there was outrage from Linda and Dawn's families, the general public and numerous victim advocacy groups, and it was removed from the exhibition. But it had already been purchased by the Royal Festival Hall for £600. Great. I don't know where that money went. I assume it went to the uh, the Kessler, Kessler Trust? Kessler, Kessler Trust. Trust, yeah. Yeah, Kessler. Um, but we don't know. Yeah. In 2016, after serving 28 years in prison, Pitchfork was eligible for parole, and his advocates presented evidence of improved character, citing his education to degree level and claiming he had become an expert. Giant bus. Um, claiming he had become a giant bus. <laughs> <laughs> His advocates presented evidence of improved character, citing his education to degree level and claiming he'd become an expert at the transcription of printed music into Braille for the benefit of the blind. Um, but, of course, needless to say, Don and Linda's families opposed his release. Uh, his application was rejected, but it was recommended that he be moved to an open prison. Uh, so in 2017, he was moved to an open prison, although the location... Uh, wasn't disclosed. His parole was reviewed two years later in uh, 2018 uh, because that's what happens with all uh, people who have their parole rejected. And he was rejected again that time. Uh, Don's mother said that the parole board had listened to the families uh, instead of the murderer. In November 2018, he was spotted unsupervised in Bristol, so it's believed that he had been moved to the nearby HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire. Uh, Pitchfork changed his name to Colin Thorpe, which the press immediately made public. <laughs> uh, in his case, it should have been reviewed once again this year, but we are yet to find out if his release has been approved. It is possible that re the review has been delayed because of covid if he is released, he will not be allowed to live in or visit the Leicester area or knowingly make contact with Don, Linda or his other unnamed victims' families. Um, for his part in Pitchfork's scheme, Ian Kelly was uh, charged with perverting the course of justice and received an 18-month suspended sentence. And he served no time in prison. So, as you can probably guess, this case left a huge legacy. Um, it revolutionized the way uh, that criminal investigations are run, uh, not only not only from that point forward, but it also helped solve a lot of cold cases from the uh, 60s and 70s. Because DNA and its potential as a crime-solving tool was known about um, during the 60s and 70s, samples were often taken and preserved, and then after Alex Jeffries's Eureka moment, as he describes it, in 1984, these samples could then be tested and matched. Uh, and one of these cases is the World's End uh, Murders in Edinburgh, which we covered in one of our very early episodes on Angus Sinclair. 
who was convicted in 2014 for the brutal rapes and murders of Helen Scott and Christine Eady in 1977. It's really interesting because I've seen in like a lot of sort of true crime groups on, on Facebook and things, people have been like, well, how did they know in, you know, like the 60s and 70s to preserve the stuff. evidence and things like that? How did they know? And it's because they'd known about DNA for over 100 or about 100 years at that point. Yeah. And they knew that eventually profiling would be a thing, but they just didn't know how, how, how long it would take. Yeah. But it was... The potential of it was known uh, so back in the 60s, yeah. um, I, which I say is great because it's helped solve a lot of cold cases. Yeah. No, I think it's so cool. Uh, research and development in DNA profiling is constantly happening. When DNA was first used in the 1980s in criminal trials, large samples were needed. The usual comparison is the size of a 50 pence piece, which according to... Taylor is about the size of a US half dollar. Yeah. Um, but because of developments like in the last 30 years, samples smaller than a gra grain of sand can now be viable. They know how to replicate it. Um, That's crazy. It's it's insane. Um, like in a good yeah. way. But yeah. Like think of how small a grain of sand is and like smaller than that it's just incredible no, it's unbelievable to, to go from something that's like you know the size of your eyeball or bigger mm. if you think about that and then to just like little teeny 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 tiny microscopic bits it's amazing yeah and uh, dr alec jeffries was knighted in 1994 for services to genetics and now Age 70, he continues to work as a professor of genetics at the University of Leicester. Good man. Yeah. And that is the case of Colin Pitchfork, the first man ever convicted using DNA profiling. It's a good one. Yeah. They said, like I said earlier, it, it saddens me that we don't know much about uh, Linda and Dawn. Mm -hmm. Um they are almost a footnote in in this case because it's it is like obviously the you know development of DNA profiling was incredible it's changed uh, criminal investigations so much it's helped so many people get justice but yeah, it just feels a bit like they're forgotten yeah and it, it's it. it's tough as well because it's a situation where you want to celebrate the sort of advancements in technology and this, this amazing thing that like revolutionized criminal justice and, and forensic science, but that discovery and that revolution and uh, advancements has to come on the backs of these two women being killed and so it's a very like bittersweet thing yeah and you know we talk about Richard Buckland you know he was he would have been convicted we all know that yeah that was like 32 years ago 
that's how we're still treated people with learning difficulties people with disabilities yeah that stigma that horrible stereotype that's so untrue is still there oh absolutely um Yeah. It's a lovely, lovely depressing note to end on. <laughs> well, but I think I think um, what's really cool is that, you know, uh, Dr. Jeffries worked so hard to to create this whole technique and yeah. and the fact that he was very sort of transparent about it and was like, yeah, of course, like it's new stuff. Why would you believe it right off the bat? Like if if nobody's ever said before that the earth is round, then no one's going to believe it. We're not going to get into the flat earther bullshit today, but. I do not have the, the brain capacity today. And neither do they. <laughs> um, but yes, I, like I think that's super cool and that he was really like, he was ready and willing to, to help out the, the investigators and be like, yep, this, here's how we're going to do it. Oh, you don't believe me? Go ask these other people. Always double check your results, everyone. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, like, I also love that he's just still teaching. That's great. Yeah. I don't know if he's actually still teaching or, or if he's still a, a, a But professor. he is still technically a professor. Yeah. At the university, um, which is incredible. And he has won so many awards and various things for for developing this technology but like we say like everything else in true crime it comes off the back of a victim yeah which is unfortunate yes so if you're if you're called to give dna don't let your buddies do it if they're big uh loudmouths when they drink no and just don't do it for anyone else yeah that too um so with that uh, we will say thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you would be so kind and you have a spare moment, and hey, this has been a short episode, so I know you have a spare moment because <laughs> you usually listen to way more bullshit yeah. than this. Um, well, that's that's the other thing about this case is, yeah, it's, it's it is so famous and everything like that, but there's actually very little to it. Yeah, it is. I did not realize when I started until I read through it all i was like oh oh that's it still yes so if you have a moment we would so appreciate if you could uh leave us a rating and a review um on apple podcasts specifically or like like us on spotify subscribe also if you are not because i was looking at our numbers the other day and about half of our listeners are not subscribed so if that's you, just hit the subscribe button. If you listen to us every week anyway, if you subscribe to us, all our nonsense will get downloaded automatically to your phone or computer or whatever. So, Or at least you get notified about it. Yes. If you're like me and have so many photos on your phone, you refuse to delete that you can't actually download it. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Been there, been there. Um, so go do that. It's awesome. If you uh, want to hang out with us more and hear more of our opinions on uh, things and our takes on other forensic things, 
legal, statutes, cases, all kinds of things, head on over to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash square mile of murder. We have bonus episodes. We have videos. There's a couple videos there. Uh, we've got cool square mile of murder stuff, like physical, tangible stuff. So yeah. um, you can check that out. And this month, uh, we're doing a bit of a Halloween stravaganza. Hey, so there's going to be excited about this. Yeah. There's going to be like, since we finally figured out what we're going to do. <laughs> it only took us a little bit, but there's going to be lots of stuff there. So uh, it is a good time to get in on the ground floor. You could be, if you sign up now, one of the first 10 patrons. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. And all the money that we make through Patreon is put back into the show. Yes, yeah. So when you when you help us out through Patreon, you are helping the show get better. Yeah, which is what we is what we all want, right? You want it to be yeah. better. We want it to be better. <laughs> we are so sleep deprived that we don't make sense anymore. No, did we to begin with though? Probably not. Definitely not. <laughs> So thank you everyone for listening and we'll yeah. see you next week with a new yeah. episode. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.